Here we go. Rejecting the screen, the going ISO edition, as we do every Thursday. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast, out west, Adam Stenko. Also out there, Ryan Hollins, the second-round pick in 06 out of UCLA, spent 10 years in the league, nine teams. And these days, you can see him and hear him everywhere, ESPN, Fox, CBS. Honestly, wherever there's a screen or a microphone, that's where Ryan is. And he's also on Twitter at the Ryan Hollins. Ryan, let's go back to UCLA for a moment. And we'll go further back, but I want to know what it was like preparing for the final four in Indy under Ben Howland. Man, going into the final four, you know, it's crazy. My body went into like autopilot mode. And if it makes sense, when we get back against a wall, all of us as humans just have a, a nature of fight or flight. You have two instincts, fight or flight. And I was in fight mode. so. From, I want to say, our conference games on, I was just locked into everything I had to do. I literally didn't have time to think about losing because all I thought about was winning. But all that time, it honestly was a blur. I was mentally prepared for the games before the games happened. LSU, Gonzaga, um, Alabama in the second round. We had these close games. But... I was prepared for these moments. I had lost my whole time at UCLA, going out in the first round or second round. Didn't make the tournament my first year. First year, actually, dude, <laughs> we set the records for losses at UCLA. So I was just determined that if it wasn't going to be a win, you were going to get 100. Well, shoot, I didn't, I didn't see a loss in, in vision. But everything I was doing was geared towards winning the game, no matter what I had to do. And I knew some of that was going to be individual um efforts beyond you know what a coach could do so look at it like this as a player as long as you run a game plan coach is the one that puts you in the game and now you got to go go out and produce so i was just i was an autopilot mode guys i mean ryan you talk about the the journey that you were under i mean you you were there for the end of the steve lavin era and then when ben howland obviously took the job as you're down in the dumps basically and struggling at ucla as a team what was what was that experience like in terms of you know what what the alums would say to you guys and and maybe how the fans were treating you at that time? Man, I, I knew I wasn't getting the proper UCLA experience. Uh, you know, I, I grew up watching uh, Ed O'Bannon, Toby Bailey, and um, and George Zedick and and Earl Watson. Those guys win at UCLA, win championships in '95. That was one of the first memories that really helped me fall in love with the game of basketball. Ty, you know, Ty Edney going full court. Uh, in, yes. in, in knocking down that layup. Those are my, man, my very first memories. And I knew that I didn't come to UCLA for no reason at all. And at that time in my life, in a lot of young athletes' life, you don't separate basketball from life. So when I say I was miserable every day, it was a cloud over my head. It was. I was depressed. And that cloud, you know, obviously I can distinguish the two now, but my time losing was miserable, man. I, I grew up in an era where you took your losses home with you. You know, you weren't supposed to be smiling on the back of a bus after a loss. You know, you were supposed to be upset. And for me, that lasted essentially three years at UCLA. Now, yeah, we had some good moments before that, that last championship run. Um, but ultimately, man, it, it, it was miserable. And then not seeing things eye to eye with my coach, being on the same page with him. And, you know, I almost want to say we were, we were really never on the same page at UCLA. Um, and it, it takes a toll on you, especially as a young player. 
because for me, guys, it was NBA or bust. Like I was all in, two feet in on the NBA. So I didn't really didn't see anything else extracurricular or any other choices other than to get it right. Not being on the same page with, with Steve Lavin or Ben Howland or both? Ben Howland. I, I was not okay. Ben Howland's guy. Um, I wasn't one of his type of players. He liked more skilled, strong, physical guys. And, dude, I was a complete opposite. I was bouncy, long, athletic, runner, wild, and, you know, extremely raw at the time, um, very much developing. So we, we really didn't see eye to eye. And, um, you know, there wasn't a certain level of patience. So I had to get on a program with what he was doing. And, you know, like ultimately, like, you can look back and complain and say this and say that. But, guys, in 99% of our lives in the workplace, is that not what it is? So mm-hmm. um, it, it was a crash course into, into life essentially at a young age your your uh, old assistant carrie keating actually just texted me and it's interesting because <laughs> it falls right in line with what we're talking about he he wants to know would you trade your west region mvp as a five to work on your development as a four absolutely i would uh you know what i always had in my mind like you know like we we're prideful guys especially as big fellas who are, you know, skilled or trying to be skilled at least at the time uh, to be forwards. And actually, you know, it's funny Coach Kerry brought that up. I started at the floor early in, in the season or the season prior, and, you know, I had one or two good games, and then one game a guy pressured me and I turned the ball over twice. And, you know, instead of kind of getting worked with and taught, uh, it was like, nah, you're going to play the five. This isn't going to work out. And uh, we were actually better with Dijon Thompson and Luke Bamute playing playing the uh playing the four position ultimately but i mean if i had to develop at that position uh because i had a decent skill set but you know there's intangibles and little little nuances that you take into the game to relieve ball pressure and make those type of plays um yeah my career would absolutely uh you know be different and you know there wasn't the same teaching you know how like kids nowadays they have all these trainers and workout gurus and and skill coaches we really didn't have that you know, you, you could either handle the basketball or you couldn't. It wasn't a, a big drawn-out deal. You know, you guys had those skill coaches, but, you know, I essentially didn't, didn't have that. So, um, yeah, my career definitely would have been on. But, you know, in my heart, I've always been a 3-4 <laughs> rather than a 5. But, you know, when you jump higher than anybody in the gym, <laughs> you're going to have to do what's best. So, you know, it, it all worked out at the end. Uh, one last question about your UCLA days. Obviously, you played in, in one of the most famous NCAA tournament games of all time. Uh, your your comeback win against Gonzaga, which people remember for Adam Morrison that year, that was his year. And then, you know, he's he's on the floor floor crying after after the game. I'm curious though, from your perspective as someone who played in that game, what's something about that game that 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 doesn't get talked about enough? Man, that game. Honestly, it was, it was like, I felt like my life was summed up, or at least my career at UCLA was summed up in that game. Mm. Down 17 points to a team that didn't give up an inch. Like, people, like, think about the comeback, and you, you really ultimately discredit Gonzaga immediately, right? That was a hard-nosed team that moved the ball, you know, seven to eight possessions or touches in a possession. This wasn't a team jacking up early shots. So, like, when I say that we had to walk them down, we literally walked them down and they made shots and you felt like every shot they made, we got further from our goal. Um, I I just felt like 
you know, how we talked about being on autopilot, it was one of those scenarios where we had to scratch and claw. And I think for me and Cedric Bozeman, it was the same type of, uh, it was the same type of environment because we came from Steve Lavin's era. Uh, Cedric has knee surgery. I had a knee surgery also. And there was a point in that game where we're, the, the buzzer goes off and the whole crowd was like in kind of amazement. I've never seen an ending of a game like this. Normally somebody's cheering, somebody's upset, whatever. The end of the game, I swear to God, it was out five to 10 seconds of silence where everybody was looking around going, what the heck just happened? You uh-huh. had Gonzaga fans, guys, true story. I remember uh, Rubio, uh, uh, Rubio, right? I forget the point guard's name. Rubio pulls up and he hits a deep three. And you know when the crowd celebrates, like, it's over. He hit the three, it's over. I remember that cheer. It was so loud in there. When we hit that, when we finally won, and we got the steal at the end, and we finished the game off, they didn't have anything to say. You heard people chattering. And then all of a sudden, I swear to God, the entire arena erupts, starts cheering and yelling. It was such a surreal moment. Me and Cedric Bozeman, there's actually a picture of it. We grab each other, and we were just walking around the arena, and we were just screaming. We were just yelling. <laughs> there was no words. It wasn't like we did it. We're here. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been able to look at somebody and they feel what you feel. Mm-hmm. And, and we were just, ah, and we were walking in, ah. And I remember looking up at Todd Ramazar and Rico Hines and those, some, those, some of the guys, former Bruins that were in a journey with me. And I saw them up in the stands and we just start yelling at each other. And it was just, it was one of those surreal lifetime moments and it was just me and said because at that time you know follow and farmer and those guys they were younger they played for ben and they were in the grind with us but i don't think you know when you have something built deep down inside of you and it comes out finally on the national stage that you've been harboring for years for nights sleepless nights early mornings and it comes out that's what that moment was so you said that it was nba or bust for you so take us through the emotions of draft night. Man, draft night was so exhausting because I, I don't know if you guys know, um, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm athletic, but at that time I was testing out off the, off the charts. I was, it was intrigued. This guy at UCLA who didn't have a great career, disappointing in fact, who all of a sudden leads his team, literally gets the most outstanding player award, leads his team to the championship game and goes to test and I was stronger than everybody because they saw how hard I worked. When I tested out my vertical, and this is the only vertical that I got back, so I could have had higher numbers. I had a 43 and a half inch vertical. When I would test the vertical, Oof. they literally had to, you had a seven footer doing that. They literally had to bring like another box out, three or four boxes, and then put those boxes on top of the chart, and then I would jump and then hit that. So what they had to do with Zion. Team, wow. Crazy. Teams were intrigued because they're saying, how does this guy jump so high? Why didn't he play? And essentially, what what was going on? So I was told, true story, I could go anywhere from 10th in the draft to 50th. Obviously, I ended up going 50th, but, dude, I'm sitting there with my friends and family at ESPN Zone, and, like, on every single pick, my emotions are racing because this is it, this is it, this is it. And I'm watching my name go by, go by, and go by. And go by. So I was just, I was literally, I was just emotionally spent. And every single name that went across the board, 
Adam Morrison, LaMarcus Aldridge, Paul Mathieu, all these guys, Booby Gibson, like uh, uh, Boone from UConn, uh, like all these guys just added to my hit list. Like, okay, got him. Okay, got him. I got him. Got him. And all these teams were passing on me. So it just built built something different inside of me. But I, I was I, I was just spent, man. I was spent and I was cheated and I was robbed. And, like, if you thought, like, the college chip on my shoulder was something, that NBA chip was different. So when you finally when you finally do, though, hear your name called, what, what's that – emotion like in particular though knowing that you even though you're frustrated now you are going to be playing in the league bro hell it was a slap in the face i was drafted during a commercial so i never actually mm. saw adam silver walk across the stage oh. and say ryan hollins is drafted to the charlotte bobcats i was mad like man i ain't get drafted and then like you know my friends are telling oh and they started kind of celebrating I said, man, I didn't, man, I got mad. I swear to God, I get mad. I get mad at all the time. I was like, man, I didn't get mad. What are you talking about? And then I'm sitting there with a straight face, and then, you know, the room starts celebrating, and, you know, I smile, man. And it, it was a bit of relief, you know, for at least for a second, because I was still in grind mode. My, my, my mind was still in autopilot from months ago, and it hadn't came down of business and work that I had to do. But then I had a chance to smile, and, you know, a few moments later, I get the call from Michael Jordan, and Bernie Bickerstaff and say, welcome to Charlotte. You know, we're excited to have you. And it was, it was surreal. It's like, man, is, is this dream really like guys, as a kid, you lay up at night. I don't know what you guys dreamt of being, Noah, whatever, like you dream of that. And then it's coming to real life. You're like, man, there's no way I'm talking to Michael Jordan on the telephone. <laughs> mm. There's no way this mm-hmm. is happening. So Man, it was it was a battery in my back. It was a battery in my back to go out and, and, and work. And for me, when I saw the NBA, when I saw the ending of my college career, I saw work. I didn't see the celebration. I didn't see the parties. I saw work. Like I got to get down and work. So that that that's what drove me. It, so speaking of hard work, a few years into your career, it was uh, your third season. You ended up getting traded that year from Charlotte, but Larry Brown took over as head coach. And I heard Adam Morrison tell this story on Doug Gottlieb's podcast once that that during training camp, Larry Brown was running like two a days or three a days. And he was just he was working you guys way more hours than anybody had ever been worked. And Jason Richardson went to the league or went to the Players Association to report Larry Brown. What were the details of that? I can't remember, like, you know, specific word for word, but, you know, Larry would keep us long and like, Here's the deal about Larry's practices. They weren't hard, but you they were long because, I swear to God, we couldn't go up and down the floor two times without Larry stopping the play and explaining to us what should happen or teaching us or saying something or yelling at somebody. So you would literally get cold. He would yell so much that you never got a good run and you would get cold, and we would end up staying in there forever. And... <laughs> You know, what's funny is I think when that when it kind of came around, <laughs> Larry Brown goes, and I love him to this day for it. He said, oh, y- y'all think y'all funny? Y'all reported me? I said, well, I don't give a you-know-what. We're going to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when the season actually started, Larry Brown will work you out in three tiers. So what am I mean by that? Everybody had to come in to start. And Larry would play. Larry was always a mind game. He was always like a, uh, you know, like messing with you, you know, challenging you as a player. So he say, starters, 
get out of here. You guys are done. But those of you who are starters, you know who you are. So essentially, it was like veterans who played the night before. Get out of here. And then we would just go through the plays with those guys. Then the second string of guys, we would start workout moves. And he, Larry's big thing was run with the basketball, guys. Run with the ball. Run with the ball. So we do these, you know, pivot drills. And then he would say, guys, you played minutes the night before, and you know you should leave. It was the mind trick. You know you should leave. Get out of here. So then he would go through drills with the rest of the guys. And then it would get skinnier and skinnier, about four or five guys left. And he'd say, man, well, if you played, whatever, you know, you should go. And, you know, maybe like a younger guy who played minutes by that time would leave. So the next thing you know, it's me, Alexis Ajinka, who was just drafted at that time, seven one, seven two out of France, and um, I think another player. And I swear to God, Larry Brown was the first person in my career during practice. We start going through drills like it was the NBA draft. And at first, I was kind of complaining, but I was like, this dude is kind of like my cup of tea. So with Larry Brown, I was doing like dunk drills, you know, two-ball pickup. So I don't know if you know about mm-hmm. a dunk drill. It's one of the mm-hmm. grimiest drills you can do in basketball. The basketball is on – you have the basketball on the east block, and you crab, dribble, dunk, boom, crab, dribble, dunk, boom, back and forth, back and forth. It's one of the most conditioning drills you can do in basketball. We were doing that drill, but – what Larry Brown was doing was conditioning a guy like myself to grow and improve in the midst of a basketball season. No one else, they always told, and this is a true story, you'll never work as hard as you do for the NBA draft as you do in the regular season or as a right, pro. Right. Now, guys like mm-hmm. Kobe Bryant probably never turn it off. The great, late, great Kobe Bryant, they don't turn it off. Michael Jordan doesn't turn it off. Those type of guys didn't turn off that work ethic in the midst of the season. But for the rest of us, that's the hardest you'll work. But Larry Brown pushed me to that point. I get traded to Dallas in the same year, and I end up making the most money I've ever made in my life, uh, signed for 2.7 or whatever for three years um, in Dallas, 2.5 a year or whatever, so $7 million. So it, it was a blessing. And it's funny, like Larry gave me three rules. And it was very old school and unconventional. So normally in basketball, everybody has an assignment, right? If you're the low guy, you go help. If you're the top guy, you crack down. He said, Ryan, you have three rules, and I'm going to hold you to these three rules every time you're on my court. He said, you go and get every single block shot. I said, well, coach, what if it's not my assignment? He said, I don't care if it's not your assignment or not. You go after every block shot. He said, you go after every single rebound. I said, coach, what if I'm on the other side of the floor and a guy's taking a layup? So you need to spring down to get the rebound every time. I don't care where you're coming from. That's your job. And he said, you need to run the floor every single time, like a bat out of hell. I said, Larry, sometimes it just doesn't make sense. If I tell you the first time I didn't do it, Larry Brown chewed me out like, like I've never been chewed out before. But those three rules, even though they seem silly to me, they put me in a position to take care of my family. Like, I've never been able to. So I love them mm. to this day for it. But, guys, I, I trust me, I feel Allen Iverson. Where he's, man, we talk about practice? <laughs> like, <laughs> I felt that. Because Larry's going to break you down to buy into what he's doing. So, Ryan, you, you, you talk about the experience you have there with, with the Bobcats, and then you had mentioned the uh, the trade to Dallas. So you're on a – this is year three for you, and you're playing on a, a struggling Bobcats team. All of a sudden you get traded to the Mavs and play in the NBA playoffs. So two parts here. First, just – your emotions around getting traded and then also how is 
how is the NBA playoffs different from any other basketball experience you had had? So for one, I, um, you know, it was depressing being in Charlotte and kind of playing off and on or not really playing. So we finally got to the point and people don't know this, but like I've been blessed to where I've always asked for my trade. I've never been traded, you know, in a surprise. And I know that's rare in professional sports, but I knew I needed to change the scenery because I was essentially going into another contract here. They made me a restricted free agent and mm -hmm. I wasn't paid there and I needed, I needed to play. And you know, I had all I had kind of grown into a stigma of being the young guy who makes mistakes, who, you know, you can't put in the game and, you know, and everybody kind of, you know, I don't want to say you wear it, you're welcome. But, you know, with your family, you look at family and immediately see the things they don't do right. You don't look at the things they do well. You see you see the wrong. And when I got traded to Dallas, I stuck out. I was an aberration. I was something different. I was wanted. I didn't feel wanted in Charlotte. And. I remember Mark Cuban came up to me and he said, we made this trade for you. You know that, right? And I'm like, what? Like, Mark Cuban, you know what I do? Like, I played two minutes a game. You know what I do? And on that team, I was different. Dirk was a shooter. I was one of the most high-flying bigs in the league at that time. And Eric Dampier was a little up in age. So everything that I did, it was, like, amazing. I would dunk, and people would be amazed. So that gave me, it was like a battery in my back, like the Energizer Bunny, I was hyped up. And when we actually got to the playoffs, man, it was the, the playoff, NBA playoff basketball, for those who don't know, don't know, it's the purest form of basketball you can ever be a part of because you actually have the best athletes in the world playing as hard as they can play. And you know what everybody does on the other side. So you start to get the chess match of coaches, you know, going under on the screen versus going over or trapping a guy in certain situations. It is instinctive basketball. So that's why when we crown our stars, we crown them in the playoffs because it means you beat every single coverage and you have a complete basketball game. Ask LeBron James when he couldn't shoot and he played Dallas earlier in his career. He got exposed. He wasn't quite ready. Ask Kobe Bryant if he didn't learn how to pass and distribute and, and trust guys like Paul Gasol. All those moments, man, they build you into a complete basketball player. So that's, that's, that's what the playoffs are like. And then when your city's behind you, or you feel like you're playing for a city, you can feel the fans. Man, <laughs> guys, there's, 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 there's no replacing that, that experience. Man, I, I'm, I'm not a guy. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't get high. None of, none of that. Never, none, never done it. It's not for me. But if I say I want to have one vice or one high playing basketball, it's the roar of those fans, man. After you get a big block, big dunk, run the floor, whatever, the, the sound you hear from the fans, nothing like it, guys. Cannot be recreated. Give me, a, give me a story about the first time you realized, oh, Mark Cuban's that kind of rich. So, <laughs> bro, fact, we're, we're flying to Detroit or somewhere. And, you know, first off, when you get in the Dallas plane versus the Charlotte plane, the Charlotte plane is just a straight charter. So Cuban owns his planes. And we get in. But when I get to my seat, there's a menu. I'm like, what the hell? Like, menu? They're like chicken, steak, whatever. Before you go up, they got chicken fingers, shrimp, all kind of stuff. And I'm like, that's the meal, right? They're like, nah, that's, that's just a warm-up, young fella. Now, be prepared for your entree, right? So I finally get to the point where uh, I, you know, we eat the meal and that's crazy to me. And I get up and I go use the bathroom on the plane. Bro, the bathroom on the plane looks like somebody's house. 
And I swear, I just sat, I didn't even, you know, I wasn't even, excuse me, I wasn't even taking the number two, guys. I just <laughs> sat in the bathroom for about 30 minutes like, yo, am I really on a plane right now? Like, are you, are you serious <laughs> right now? <laughs> are you kidding me? Then, that's not even it. This one I knew Cuban was rich, rich, like with the capital R's on both rich, rich. Our plane was having problems. They had to check it for maintenance or something. And Cuban goes, don't worry, guys. Just take my other plane. <laughs> other plane? <laughs> what? Oh, bro. Other plane? It's a wrap. It's a wrap. GG's. Good game, man. <laughs> you won. <laughs> you won, bro. Take the other plane. <laughs> we don't want to get delayed, guys. Just take the other one. Who who yeah. who ate who took it who took advantage most of the menu on that plane? Oh, I, I will probably say myself. Uh, uh, okay. I, I've been compared to the NBA chefs. Um, I asked a guy. Well, he's actually the chef in Boston right now with the Celtics, and he was in Memphis with me. I said, and he worked in the NFL. He started with the Rams. And I said, if you compare my eating to a player in an NFL position, what would be just intrigued, you know, just kind of laughing? He said, you eat like a defensive tackle. Oh. Oh, that's <laughs> so impressive. So even when you saw skinny Ryan Hollins, 215, 225 pounds and seven feet, they're like, yeah, you eat like a defensive tackle. That's, that's a true story. That's impressive. Man, so you had, to go, you had to go from there to Minnesota? Yeah, to Minnesota, but the – but the, the money was right. The money was right, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, you know, it's funny, bro. You know, it's funny. This is life. This is how life comes at you. Before the draft, I told my agent, he said, we're going to set up a workout in Charlotte. I said, why would I go to Charlotte? They have the second pick and they have the 50th pick. I said, I darn sure ain't going second. And I was cocky. I'm not going to be around and go 50th. My agent begged me. He was like, he was like, look, man. He was like, go work out in Charlotte. Just listen to me. Go walk in a shot and you never know what's going to happen. I'll be darn sure if I wasn't the 50th pick. And there was also a rule there in Charlotte that they had that if you didn't work out for them in the draft, they wouldn't draft you. So Brandon and Roy mm. should have been drafted over Adam Morrison. It would have been, but he refused the workout because he carved his way to Portland that year. Also, funny you said about Minnesota and free agency. You know, I want to go play with Steve Nash. I want to come to L.A., come home and play with Kobe. I went to play for the Clippers at that time. You know, one of those big organizations. Go play with KG, wherever. Like, I told my agent, man, man, I don't want to go to Minnesota. He said, well, Ryan, where do you want to go? I said, anywhere but Minnesota. Sure enough, right on time. He didn't call me and said, well, Ryan, the long pause. Minnesota's serious about you. You're going to Minnesota. I mean, it ended up being an amazing lifetime experience. But both those scenarios, man. You, you get humbled just when you think you've kind of hit the mountaintop or you got a saying what should or what shouldn't happen, man. Nah, nah, man. Come on, come on back down to earth. That, that Minnesota team. So you signed with them the summer of 2009. Where, where was your signing in relation to that, to that infamous draft? So we get Johnny Flynn, but keep in mind, Johnny Flynn just went into a triple overtime against UConn and eight. Oh yeah. And if you saw Johnny Flynn physically, he could jump out the gym. He could shoot it. He had a handle out of this world. And he was, he was like Eric Bledsoe. He was built like a linebacker. And he just had a battery in his back. He loved basketball. Problem with Johnny Flynn was Johnny had got injured. And, and he had his hip. And once his hip went out for a small guard to have hip problems, it's, it's pretty much a wrap. That's tough. 
And Johnny had problems kind of creating his own shot and reading the pick and roll. And not just that, he was playing in the triangle. You take a guard like that who's fast, explosive, and loves to play in space, and you put him in a triangle offense, hell, you're not going to get much production out of him. That's not putting him in the greatest scenario. And then if you looked at our roster, we had eight or nine power forwards and four mm-hmm. point guards or whatever on yeah. roster. And then you draft Rubio the next year. So it was a log jam at certain positions. And I was intriguing because you had Al Jefferson and Kevin Love starting, but they were like the same player. They both wanted to score, weren't defenders. And I was this athletic defender. So I end up starting and Kevin Love comes off the bench. Not that Kevin Love was a, Kevin Love should have been the starter, but I just fit better defensively. So we were we we were really all over the place that year. <laughs> Yeah, roster construction, not not David Kahn's forte. When you, you had said that you wanted to go to the Clippers at some point, just be in the big market, be back home in L.A. So when you, you end up playing for the Clippers and you're part of the team in 14 when the Don, Donald Sterling tapes come out. My, my question was on the radio at the time, on NBA radio, was if everybody in the league and players knew, and, I, I, and you've talked about it already, that you knew – who Donald Sterling was, then why was it okay for players to not say anything publicly about him before the tapes came out? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I'm going to be honest with you, bro. When I heard the tapes, I can't lie, it hurt. We know they're, they're, I don't even like to say racist people. I don't even think Donald Sterling is racist. I think he just honestly feels, and maybe I'm defining racism wrong, or I'll say his mindset behind it. He feels like this is for me and that's for you. You run fast, you jump high, that's what you do. I make money. No disrespect, I actually love you, but you're never gonna do what I do and I'm never gonna be able to do what you do. I think that's more his mindset than somebody looking at you in a certain nasty way. Now, however you wanna define it, I don't know, but that's how I took it. But ultimately, I always saw Donald Sterling as a racist, always. So when it came out, and everybody was shocked. I'm like, or some people kind of made fusses in the meeting. I don't know about playing and this and that. Like, I'm like, bro, y'all knew from day one this wasn't a secret. So why are you so offended now? And I'm not saying that those words didn't hurt when he said, you know, how whatever he said about Magic Johnson, how his phrase that Magic shouldn't have been, you mm-hmm. know, please stay away from him or something about the black yeah. players. Like, that hurt. I can't even say I was mad. I, it, it, it hurt. But ultimately, it was something that – um I knew and the guys knew, so I didn't really understand all of the, the fuss. So so why did guys and and you also why why did you sign with, with the Clippers if you knew the owner was a racist? When I when I laid up in bed at night as a little boy standing at the walls and dreaming about, you know, guarding Kevin Garnett or, you know, passing the ball to Tim Duncan, Donald Sterling never was a part of those dreams. <laughs> He never came up as a part. I have not played one day in the NBA for Donald Sterling. There are several bosses and owners and presidents that are racist. I've never played one day for them. So he did not define me as a player or me living my dreams. That's just a nasty part of any big business of somebody's personal agendas or who they are as a person. He did not represent me. It's it's pretty it's pretty wild. It is pretty wild that you that we've talked about three owners and you're talking about Michael Jordan, Mark Cuban, and Donald Sterling, that you've played for those three guys. And like last week, we had Brendan Haywood on, and he played as a teammate with Michael Jordan 
and with LeBron and, and you played for these three owners who will be forever known in, in NBA history. Oh yeah. I, I, and I was in the midst of it. I mean, it, it was a circus and you know, it's funny, Noah, like I, uh, I was, how would I put this? I was just starting in radio at the time in my media career. And that was a, kind of the first time where I was like, I want to do this as a real thing. And I would do radio. And I would kind of have segments with Marcellus Wiley and Max Kellerman. And I'm just learning, right? And my boss, Michael Thompson, at the time at the station, I don't know if I can call him my boss, whatever program director, he sits down with me. He says, we want to do these sit-downs with you and talk about Sterling. And I was instructed by Doc Rivers not to do so. So I'm not messing with the boss. They said, shut your mouth. Sure as heck, if Matt Barnes ain't in the media talking about it and DeAndre Jordan making statements and all these guys are making mm-hmm. statements. And I'm being a good guy, shutting my mouth. In the very next year, I'm not even on the roster anymore. So it's funny. I look back and say, you know, my media career could have been popping because Ramona mm-hmm. Shelburne, Ramona never looked back. Ramona was a really good reporter and always has been. But she, she thrust into the national spotlight and, and never turned around from that moment on. Brian, how close were you to not playing in that, in that game four as a team? I don't think we were going to not play, but I, I believe we had we wanted to be heard. And it was very confusing because none of those people played basketball for us. None of those people lived our dreams and our, and our grind. But everybody wants to step in and have an opinion. Everybody had an opinion. Don't play. Don't do this. Don't do that. And, you know, we want to do something. And I forget whose idea it was, essentially. But we threw down our jerseys at half court just to show that we, we weren't okay with the actions that had happened. And I was so mad at TMZ in the sense that if y'all love black people so much and you're this, these freedom fighters, why would you hold the story for months? And why would you wait until a, the biggest ABC game in our career pretty much to drop it? Y'all are trying to make your money, TMZ. Y'all don't care about black people. Straight up. You're, you're about your money and you're about the story. So essentially, like, when that, when that happened, I – uh. I, I, I was just kind of taken back by it. And I didn't know how big the story would be because Doc Rivers came to us before the story. Um, Doc Rivers came to us the night before and said, hey, guys, there's things are going to drop about Donald Sterling. It's not really good. And just, just giving you a, a heads up. And, you know, so we were kind of like, okay, we'll see. Well, I don't know if he knew, but it was national media. And my phone had about 100 text messages. So that next day, it was, it was insane. We were the headline story, and we were not prepared for that. And mm-hmm. I tell you, if the Warriors, Steph Curry, and Klay Thompson, those guys didn't jump all over us, they beat the brakes off of that game. And mm-hmm. at that moment, we were by far the better team. They weren't the Warriors yet. I like to liken our Clippers squad to kind of like the Detroit Pistons. Now, we didn't get championships. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But we were kind of Detroit Pistons that kind of beat those guys up. And then they became, I mean, one, the NBA's greatest team historically in my mind. Right. Did, did you, once you left there, did you think that that Clippers team, that Lob City group could be a championship team? Our pieces didn't fit. That was a problem. Our pieces never fit. You know, it's really hard when you get to the playoffs to have two non-shooting bigs. And Blake's jumper hadn't quite developed at that time. And he was really effective on the block. So our two best players didn't space the floor properly. 
you know, and Chris was, you know, arguably the best, if not one of the best point guards in the league at that time. And we, we would struggle against defenses because of spacing. And we, we would, you know, beat the brakes off everybody in the regular season. And it was really tough to get baskets uh, down, down the stretch later on because teams would just crowd the paint on Blake and would take, you know, dunks and layups away from him and then, you know, kind of force DeAndre Jordan to beat you. What kind of teammate was Chris Paul? Because we've heard varying degrees about pe- what people think about him as a leader, what the media thinks, all that. When you're playing with Chris Paul, what, what, what kind of teammate is Chris Paul? When it comes to Chris Paul as a teammate, um, he's one of the greatest competitors I've ever played with. Like, he's so, like he wants to win everything. Um, but I think it was tough to get on the same page with him. And he's the type of guy, he's so smart that he's going to take the matters into his own hands. So if he passes the ball, you the ball, and you don't hit a shot for him, he may not come back to you. Now, he may go into you, you're ready to go, but he's going he's gonna to spoon feed you to what he sees because he's so smart. And, you know, sometimes Chris will yell at guys and they would take it wrong I would say from essentially a lack of disrespect or from a kind of a, a respect standpoint. And I think Chris is so competitive, he never saw it like that. I don't think he, he got it like that. That's how uh, the information was taken. And I think as leaders, man, as you're a young guy, you know, 25, 24, 26, whatever years old, you got to learn how to, how to deal with people and personality to get the most out of them. And it's a growth process. It is. So, I think that was the toughest hurdle at that point. He was so much better than the rest of us. And him and Blake never really quite fit. Like, it wasn't that Stockton and Malone connection. And then our live city was popping, don't get me wrong. But those guys didn't just ultimately fit. Like, you know, when he was in New Orleans, Tyson Chandler, David Weston, those guys, it was, it was a clinic. It was surgical. We didn't have that, at least not at the higher levels. Yeah, Ron, what was the last thing that you and Kendrick Perkins actually agreed on? Man, (laughs) I got to think right now. You know, I don't fight some of his points, but uh, my guy, he just comes so strong. He just comes so strong with with a couple of them, man. But you know what's funny? Like, everybody gets so offended when they see me and Perk go back and forth. That's how NBA players talk to each other in the locker room. It's very candid. It's very straight up. We don't agree with each other. And, in fact, there's arguments that happen every single day. And now you're just seeing that kind of on Twitter. But, like, mm-hmm. everybody's like, you guys okay? You guys okay? That's how just pe- we talk to each other. That's our language, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And it's, and it's also good that you two aren't taking it personally. No. Because these, these days everybody thinks that whenever two people disagree in public that they really just don't like each other. No. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, shoot, you too, Noah. You know how to mix it up, brother. You, hey, hey, you might be feistier than, than <laughs> Yeah, but so. but the difference, Ryan, is Noah will take it to the streets. He doesn't just oh, leave it on Twitter. Perk, Perk doesn't, oh, Perk doesn't yeah. want a piece of this. He doesn't want this. Oh, yeah, he, he, does, yeah he, does, he does not want. He does not want this. Oh, hey, trust me, I know. I remember. <laughs> uh, so, Ryan, when you're when when you're doing first take or the other shows and you're going back and forth with Shaq any any part of you enjoy the the troll the troll aspect of it I would never say that um I think just people don't like the candid conversation 
So mm. to me, a troll is a guy with no basis behind what he's saying. And a troll is just saying stuff to say stuff. For me, if I don't believe it, I'm not going to say it. And I have strong opinions. And, you know, it's funny, guys, is everybody wants to hear what happens in the locker room. How do you guys talk? How do you guys talk? And when you get that candid locker room talk, everybody's not equipped or ready for it. Barbershop yeah. talk. When th- that's how we talk. Y'all fans beg for that. Give me, nah, tell me how you really feel. Tell me your truth. That's how we feel. If you are a fly on the wall in an NBA coaches meeting, you'll be absurd by how many hot takes or, or, or expressions or strong opinions you would hear. I mean, wild ones. And I hate this guy. I can't stand this player. Like, what? That's our best player. Like, you'll be, you'll be amazed. But when you hear it as fans, it's so offensive. Everybody's up in arms. So I, I think I would just challenge fans and people, man, you, you want to hear the realisticness? You want to hear honest talk? Do you want to hear what you're really asking for? That's a, it's a great call. And, I, and now on the flip side, though, of course, <clears throat> there's also keeping that stuff in-house. So I'm also curious, have you, because I, you know, look, Noah and I talk to players and coaches and guys who played in the league and they'll tell us stuff off mic that they won't say on mic. And you're one of the ones that will speak on mic about this stuff. So how about on the flip side, how much have you heard from, from guys in the league and stuff like, wow, I can't believe that you said that, you know, I, I can't believe you said it publicly or guys getting frustrated because of something that you said out loud. I got rules behind what I would say. My, my first rule is I never mess with a player's money. If a guy's going into a contract year, an important position in his career, I'm always protect that player, whether I like him or not, because we don't play with each other's money. Um, and, and two, if I can't say it to your face, I'm not ultimately going to say it. But also, if you say something in private, that means something to me. Because if I go to you guys in confidence and say, no, nah, I really don't like that guy, that's not going to work. I've never mm-hmm. gone out and, and, and conveyed some of that material. And if I've ever crossed those lines, and I have offended some people before, it's nothing but a conversation. We've had them, and they understand where I'm coming from. And if I feel like the message was conveyed wrong, I'll be the first to get behind and apologize or say, no, that was not accurate, and I should have or shouldn't have said what I said. So I, I, I would never, like, see, that, that's a rule, and I've never done I'm not going to take something you tell me, oh, he said this. That's not cool. That's very, very inappropriate, man, because to me – my integrity as a man lasts far beyond some media nonsense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes, so yes. I could have something that could break the internet as a story. And I have several things. Don't get me wrong. I'm never going to do it because there's a code behind it. There's a code of integrity. And I know certain people that go out and do it. So you're not going to find no instance where I've gone out and I've spilled the beans on somebody or something like that. That's just, that's just not going to happen. And you can't find an occurrence where it's happened. Yeah, I think there's there's a fine line that a lot of recently retired players are trying to walk of reporter and what reporters do about breaking news and being an analyst and taking people behind the curtain. Yeah, and you know what's funny, Noah? The one thing I know I've understood or realized is not what you say, it's how you say it. Everything I say is deep-rooted with, with facts and information Hell, if this was college, I could write a thesis on any of my tapes. And if you watch my notes, and I know you've seen it every once in a while I post it, I have papers and mounds and mounds of stacks of research and information. Mm -hmm. I can't throw something out just to throw it out. That's not true. But I think there is definitely a fine line because, you know, you can get on. It's money to be had. 
by, by people doing it. Um, but I think you just have to be cognitive of what you're going to say. And for me, if I'm uncomfortable about it, I'm going to come to you before. And let's say I messed up because I'm human. I'll come to you after and say, hey, man, I discussed this and this. Is, is this okay? Was that all right? Man, I'm going to clean that up, man. My, hey, bro, my apologies. And I think it's nothing but a line of, of communication. You know, I'm mm-hmm. not going not to say no player, but me and another, you know, shoot, all-star, megastar player had a, had a problem. And uh, I don't want to say had a problem, but he just felt some type of way from the things I said. He goes, man, you're always negative, blah, 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 when you talk about me. And I said, brother, have you heard the times when I say I'm a big fan of you? Have you heard the times when I talk about your game and how my expectations of you or why I'm critical of you? Because I know your friends and family just send you the blast or the heading or the headlines. But have you heard when I have your back? And I said, well, one ain't nothing but a conversation. But have you heard those times? Because you don't call me or you don't hold on to those positive moments. You hold on to the negative ones. So, you know, obviously when you hear things in, in the headlines, it may become a problem. But, man, I, I love all these guys. And I'm a big fan of just basketball, period. But uh, when I speak, I'm going to be honest, man. If a guy's not holding par or I have different expectations of him as we should have of ourselves, I'm going to put it out. All right, just a few more with Ryan Hollins, and, and we could spend the next 15 minutes naming every All-Star over the past three years and then having you blink twice when we came up when we came up with that player. But, but, but before, you, you, you talked about lo- locker room talk. What was, the, what was the locker room talk in 2014 in Sacramento when Mike Malone got fired? Man, we were upset because Mike Malone, it was just like, you know how family knows how to talk to each other? Like, mm-hmm. with your family, with your boy, he's, if you're tripping, he's going to come at you and yell and scream at you, and then y'all going to hug and make up, and y'all going to get it right. But that's kind of your, your, your love language, your language, whatever you may, how you want to put it. DeMarcus Cousins and Mike Malone had that. He would go to DeMarcus like, man, you, you sitting on your butt today. And DeMarcus will respond, boom, and then play well. It will, it will work. Mike Malone was very realistic about the roster that he had. He never complained about the cards he was dealt. So when he was fired, it was like, Mike Malone, maybe we weren't winning, but he was getting the most out of us. He was getting the most out of us. And I knew that he wanted to run and get up and down. So that was frustrating. So there was no surprise to me when he bounced back. And then you really felt the organization in, in this uh, uh, kind of up in the air when, you know, Ty got the job and you don't stick with Ty. And George comes in and, you know, George Carl came in like, you know, you know, judge, jury, and executioner. <laughs> and we know, you know, how story George Carl is, but getting that in the middle of a year, it was, it was a tough year. It, it was a tough year. But, um, you know, I can't fault an organization for trying, but it was confusing. And I think, you know, even when the coaching staff comes and they're like, man, I don't know what the heck is going on here. When you hearing that from the coaches or the middle management, now that's, that makes that year really intriguing. So, I mean, we worked to do the best with what we had in that year, but I, I never as a professional in my entire life seen a year like that or a team or an organization at that moment. Well, in terms of organizations, you also, with the Celtics, played with, look, the, the original big three, but also you had a chance to experience what what people really haven't seen in the, or have talked about for a long time, and that's that's you've seen the breakups post big three of Ray Allen and not just the big three, but also with Rondo, the big four, if you will. Um, what, what do you think is behind all that? The, the Rondo Ray Allen 
um, beef that's that's gone on, and really Ray Allen with the rest of the guys. Well, here's the big deal. Uh, Ray was always used to being a man. Kevin was used to being a man. Paul was used to being a man, and you throw those guys together, and for a majority of the season, Ray was missing with it with his ankle injury. He had bone chips in his ankle, so he was really limited to what he could do on the court. And when Ray, Ray Allen got back, Ray Allen is used to being Ray Allen. So we had to work him in. But, you know, Ray ultimately, you know, he sacrificed his game for winning and he didn't feel appreciated. And when it comes to Rondo, Rondo will hold his tongue, but Rondo's going to keep it real. And there have been things said about Rondo behind his back that he would have, like, said to his face. And people, some people weren't fans of him. So when it hits the fan, Rondo's going to keep it 100. He's going to be honest about the things that were said because they were foul about him. And some people weren't fans of him and didn't appreciate the sacrifices he made for his game. It was just kind of like, you the young fella, it's about us. You the young fella, it's about us. So when, when those things came out to Rondo and he had his moment to speak, he spoke on them. And I think just things got awkward because – you know, Ray was working his way back. He felt essentially unappreciated, and he had a chance to go win in Miami, and Miami was our rival. Like, we, I don't want to say we hated Miami, but we really did not like LeBron and D-Wade and those guys. It was personal. It was bigger than basketball um, because at that moment, D-Wade fell on Rondo's arm, and his arm piper extends backwards. They felt like that was a dirty play. And, you know, there was a real lack of respect for – the way they kind of burst onto the scene of, you know, hey, we're 10-time champions or whatever. And we were a thriving team. They seemingly were the, kind of the, the pretty boys, the, you know, entitled guys at the time. And, you know, there was always a respect for Wade. But, you know, LeBron and Bosch, that respect wasn't quite there for them. So that that ended up being the big turmoil. And then for Ray to go there with them, um, you know, made a person. I, and I've heard both sides of the story. And I, I love all those guys, you know. But, you know, Ray – when you're not in the fold with your teammates and you're kind of rehabbing and training, it's easily mentally to, to draw away from guys and feel unappreciated. And, you know, as we moved on, you know, even Ray gets to a point where he's coming off the bench for Avery Bradley because that was seemingly was best for the team at that time. And it was, but, you know, you put Ray Allen in, in a triggering spot and you got LeBron on the phone talking about, man, we love you. We appreciate you. Come win a ring for us. And he did. <laughs> so right. that was a really tough place to be in. And I don't think it was intentional from any of those guys. But you have those type of personalities, man, together. And it's just, it's just hard to micromanage. And all those guys are like KG is an alpha. Paul's an alpha. Rondo became an alpha. Ray Allen is an alpha. He's been doing that for so long. That's tough to keep together. And I got to credit Boston because it was really – really good for a long time and that stuff didn't ultimately come out as as for Rajon Rondo I've heard remarkable stuff about how his mind is just just special his brain is different than what what other people have any clue about do you have a do you have any story about just just how incredible Rondo's brain is so for one he's the first player that I've ever seen for one he's 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 10 steps ahead Um, he would come out in the layup lines Everybody shoots, right? Rondo will warm up his passes. So he would have a ball boy throwing the ball, and he's just firing passes to everybody, getting people in stride. And we would be in the game, and I'm the, what, the 15th man on the roster, 20th man. When I ran the floor and I sprinted and I was open, I'd be gosh darn if the ball wasn't in the air for a lob in those immediate moments. 
And then not just that, Rondo had a trust in a guy like myself where in a big moment, he would throw the lob. He would throw it up. He would throw that thing from full court. So it made me have to, you know, I would run even harder. I remember in the game one time, Rondo was like, hey, set the pick, do this. I'm going to get you a lob right now. And if I didn't get a lob dunk and jump over my man on that exact play, it happened exactly how he said it. I also did the top 100 coaching clinic with Rondo, and he's a guy right now, if you want him to coach the Lakers, he could coach the Lakers right now. <laughs> like, no disrespect to Coach Vogel or Walden or any of those guys. He's that type of guy. Like, right now, he could coach Stephen with, you know, energy, authority, and, like, he's 10 steps ahead. He, coach, he could coach right, like, right now. He, he could, would not miss a beat. Uh, let, let's stay with the Celtics quickly, going back to the 2012. The, I remember being in the building for the 45, 15, and 5 from LeBron, just an all-time intense performance that I ever witnessed in person. What was the, what was the mood like going back to Miami for Game 7? Man, we went back to Miami for Game 7. We knew we were screwed. Um, and forgive me, we just we felt like, and I'm not saying this is, you know, that the, the NBA was cheating or anything, but we just felt like it would be hard to get a whistle um, in Game 7. I felt like we just knew the temperature to play off. That's why you take care of home. You're more likely to get a friendly whistle at home than on the road. We knew once their crowd got into it, they were out running in transition. We weren't going to beat Miami on the road. Now, we went in with the mindset that, like, it was war. And don't get me wrong, but we knew we had to close out at home. And LeBron becomes LeBron. We thought we had the game plan done because, I kid you not, we had Marl Chalmers bagged up. We had D-Wade bagged up. We had all his moves, all his shot picks, all his fakes. You know, Adonis Havlism, we were closing out on his mid-range. We had everybody bagged up. And I remember it was like we were up 10 or so, well, whatever was happening. Mario Chalmers goes to the hole and he rejects the screen. And he gets a layup. And that just kind of started the barrage. We were, we were really done from there. But that was, that was a game that I'll never forget. But LeBron went off. That's why, you know, people go, you're a big fan of LeBron, this and that. Because I've been on the other side of it. I've been on the other side of LeBron. I've seen it. Y'all ain't seen it. Y'all ain't game plan. You ain't strategized for LeBron. So when I say he's the greatest player of all time, that don't just come out of thin air. He's different, bro. LeBron James is a different animal, and I've seen it firsthand. I've seen the look in his eyes. I've scouted him. We've thrown people at him. We've scored at him. We've grinded against him. He's a different animal. I, I first saw LeBron James ABCD camp going into his junior year and saw it then um, that he was just a different type of kid than I had, than I had ever been around before. Uh, Ryan, you just said – uh, reject the screen. And this podcast is called rejecting the screen. So we always like to ask the <laughs> guests at the end, who's the one guy that you would choose that you played against played with the one guy you would choose end a game situation. You needed a bucket life on the line. Who are you going to, to reject the screen, go ISO. And the only rule is you can't say MJ, although I know he wouldn't probably be yours anyway, knowing how some of the stuff's gone on first take, but, but, Regardless, who you choosing to reject the screen? Go ISO. I'm not gonna if I'm not gonna say uh, MJ, man. I'm gonna give Kobe the basketball. Um, we miss him dearly. You know, this is a you know we've been spoiled in a game of basketball to have not lost our greats. You know, and I know we lost uh, Will Chamberlain. You know, years back, and it feels like just yesterday. But we have our Mount Rushmore. We have Barkley. We have Shaq. We have Jordan. We have Magic. We have Bird. And we thought we lost Magic. 
we have all these guys. We've been spoiled, and we lost Kobe so too soon, man. Um, so I give the ball to Kobe. I'll put the ball in Kobe's hands without a without a, a, a second guessing. And I know, if anything, I've got a guy who's prepared. He's game plan. He's ready. He's salivating, and he's he's going to take that moment. Win, lose, or draw, I'm putting the ball in Kobe Bryant's hands. All right, he's Ryan Hollins. Again, follow him on Twitter, at the Ryan Hollins. Check him out on Instagram and every single platform, CBS, ESPN, Fox. The guy's working as hard in the media as he did during those 10 years in the league. Ryan, I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, man, anytime, guys. Thanks thanks for your patience, man. And, uh, man, great, great stuff, man. Appreciate you having me. I got to know Ryan a little bit back at Sirius NBA Radio and have followed his career over the past few years just in the media. And I'm glad you brought up the the trolling versus conversation. But I'm glad that Ryan answered it in the way that we all want to hear how players talk. And oftentimes, you know, players are going back and forth at each other and it isn't personal and it simply is locker room talk. I know, I know locker room talk came up during the election last time, but this is actual locker room talk. And when you want to hear how players do speak with one another behind closed doors. This is this is how they do it, and and I just hope that Ryan continues to have the platforms to be able to do so. Yeah, obviously there's there's something there. He he's got the the gift of gab and and knows how to articulate things in a way in which he's not offensive to to former teammates, and yet still is revealing to us. And that's all we ask for as fans, as media members. It's all we're begging for is, hey, can we get someone who opens up to us and lets us know what's really going on? And then, like he says, a lot of times we don't want to hear it, especially if we differ with the opinion. And, you know, plus, first take on its own has a setup that's just built for people to ha- take issue with it. I mean, I when I worked at ESPN, I observed first take and, and how it was knew the producers and, and coordinated producers and, and would watch how they put the show together they'd get there like a couple hours before the show, get on the whiteboard and just start going through the topics. They all were sent the night prior and they would say, okay, well, what do you think? Who, who's better? You know, uh, who's going to win the series, whatever. And then <laughs> right, if, right. if everyone agrees, they say, okay, let's move on to the next thing. And, and it, and until they dig down deeper and deeper until they find a question they disagree on. So there's a level of authenticity in terms of what the people actually believe. And just because we disagree with Ryan's opinion doesn't sometimes doesn't mean that that he's making it up. And I thought he did a great job of explaining where he's coming from. That was awesome. Yeah, he did. He did. All right. So make sure you go back and you can listen to all the other going ISO editions of the podcast. We referenced the Brendan Haywood one, some great stories from last week. Sam Mitchell, Richard Jefferson, John Hollinger, Alex Kennedy, Hoop Type, Ryan Rosillo, Peter Vesey. All of those you can listen to and enjoy those conversations without even knowing when they were recorded since they're not really time-stamped. And also, check out everything else going on on the Locked On Podcast Network, Locked On Fantasy Hoops. you got to be listening to Josh Lloyd right now with the fantasy playoffs here. For some reason, my fantasy playoffs don't start until next week, and it's driving me up a wall already. But I'm in fifth place in a 12-team league, and I'm making the push thanks to my man, Shake Milton. Also, Locked On NBA, the national show, five days a week. Hollinger and Duncan on Mondays. And, of course, every single team, every single day, all 30 teams covered with a podcast every single day here on Locked On. Make sure you follow him on Twitter at NaysmithLives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V on Instagram. You can check out the podcast. We'll post more clips at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. 
Adam, thanks, pal. You are the best.